0: Welcome to episode 74 of the Rich Roll Podcast with Jonathan Fields. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome to the podcast, or the RRP, as I like to call it each week i bring to you the best most forward thinking paradigm busting minds in health fitness wellness diet nutrition spirituality creativity entrepreneurship and when thinking about my guests my primary focus is on people and personalities who are pushing boundaries people that are living extraordinary lives people that are thinking different blazing their own path questioning authority living large people that are living on their own terms and in, in service not just to themselves but really devoted to something greater than themselves, outside themselves, devoted to helping other people, to inspiring people, and putting out a message uh, on how to raise the bar on what is possible in your own life. And I deliver these conversations with the intention of providing you with a toolbox of information and motivation and inspiration to help you take your life to the next level. Uh, And the goal is pure and simple. It's just to help you discover, unlock, and unleash your best most authentic self that's it that's the goal and uh before we get into today's amazing guest, uh I wanted to talk about one little thing it's It's not an ad, so please don't fast forward through this um, No ads up front today uh or maybe ever um, I might be done with that anyway uh I want to thank everybody who took a moment to read a blog post article that I posted on my site the other day and it was called. Why You Should Stop Life Hacking and Invest in the Journey. And I have to say, wow, you know, that one really struck a chord. Within 24 hours of posting that piece, it became the most read piece of writing I've ever published on my site. And, you know, thank you, you guys, who took a moment to read it and for all the great comments. And if you haven't seen it yet, just go to my site, richroll.com, and you can you can check it out and read it there on the blog. Um, and I wrote it because I've been thinking a lot lately about self-improvement and how to Be Your Best Self. And after interviewing Casey Neistat the other week, uh, thanks everybody who who listened to that one. That was a great episode. People seemed to really enjoy it. Um, there was a lot of discussion about the journey over the destination, about the hard work and the toil and the total commitment that goes into actualizing something that's important in your life. And Casey kind of ended the interview with a very astute, um, compelling statement. It was his guarantee For life success. And he basically said, here's my guarantee for success. Uh, Commit everything that you are, your entire being, to that one thing that you're passionate about. Commit everything. And one of two outcomes will occur. Either you will succeed or you will die trying. And that in and of itself is its own form of success. And I've been thinking a lot about that lately. And then I started thinking about kind of what's going on culturally right now. And this really kind of meme-fueled movement uh, that is oriented around hacking your life, this hack-obsessed culture, biohacking, life hacking, fit hack, all this sort of thing. And that's really, you know, I mean, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with this term, you know, just Google any derivation of it, and I think you'll be quite amazed at, at what comes up. There's, like, whole conferences oriented around this. And I think in and of itself, in isolation, this is a really good thing. I mean, the idea really is to is to figure out uh, and implement these time-saving tools. They're ways for streamlining your life so that you can free up time. And I think the intention is that you then use that free time to devote yourself more fully to something that's important to you personally or something that uh, is more about building your legacy or living more passionately in your life. But uh, I think somewhere along the line, we kind of lost the thread. And what's happened is... That the hack has become the goal in and of itself rather than the tool to something else. And that kind of really bothers me. And on some level, I suppose it bothers me because it seems to inherently devalue and downgrade the gratification that comes with just plain hard work and devotion and dedication and commitment to a path. You know, it's very easy to hashtag uh, a hack but uh it's not as sexy to just say it takes hard work and to me uh inherently that's kind of the truth. <laughs> you know, I'm all about suiting up and and showing up for the long play, the hard-fought path and there's a lot of value in that and I feel like this this meme obsessed, hack obsessed culture uh sort of disrespects that on some level. You know, the destination, the goal, the result is nothing, but the journey is everything and that's where the value lies. It's a sentiment, again, that was echoed in last week's episode with Casey, who is a guy who overcame tremendous obstacles with nothing but faith and will and and total commitment and belief in himself and this sort of uh, inherent total devotion to process. And that's also the ethos that really captures what today's guest is all about. So Jonathan Fields. Jonathan's a guy— who I've been following with great enthusiasm for a number of years right now. And in many ways, he's a guy I can really relate to. He's a guy who decided to leave the kind of gilded protective hallways of the corporate law firm life and and really risked everything in search of a life path of greater personal meaning for himself and for, for other people as well. He's a guy who is on a he's really on a mission to humanize and empower the process of creation to help individuals and organizations leverage disruption to conceive and build better solutions better businesses better art and lives with more joy and less effort uh, like me he's a dad he's a husband he's a serial entrepreneur he's an award winning author he's a he's a in-demand speaker and an A-list blogger. You should definitely go to his website, jonathanfields.com, and and read some of his writings. They always improve my day. Uh, And he's really a mindful innovator uh, and a strategist. And mindfulness is really the touchstone. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And this is a guy who, he's all over the place. I mean, he's been profiled in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Entrepreneur, Forbes. And it's because he has a message that uh is powerful and and really really resonates his latest book is called uncertainty turning fear and doubt into fuel for brilliance and it was one of the top personal development books of 2011 and uh his first book was called career renegade it came out a number of years ago and that book was really instrumental in empowering me to change my life um, when I was at a crossroads many years ago. It was one of the top 10 small business books uh, and, you know, a bestseller and all that kind of stuff. And it's really kind of a primer for how you can transcend your circumstances and reframe uh, the idea of what career is and kind of flip the notions of what a traditional career is and embrace the idea that there are new and better ways of doing things that might be more in alignment with who you are uh, as a person. He also has a web series, uh, a video web series called Good Life Project, and I absolutely love this program that he puts out. It's a series of very high-quality video interviews that are interview-style, kind of you know, on the Charlie Rose tip, where he sits down with a wide array of really inspirational people and kind of taps their brain about... Um, what makes them work. And he also puts that up on iTunes as an audio podcast, but I would urge you to check out the video. It's really cool. And I was lucky enough that uh, he sat down with me. I I got to be a guest on that show last year, and that was really super fun and cool. Um, So Jonathan was kind enough to sit down with me when I was in New York a couple weeks ago. And uh, he's a guy who who really uh, understands the value of the journey over the life hack. And that's why I think it was important to post this interview this week uh, to kind of create a consistent thread with what I'm writing on my site and the kind of interviews that I'm offering you. So anyway, without further ado, I'm really proud and excited to share this amazing conversation with uh, somebody who has been very personally inspiring to me with you today. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Fields. Jonathan Fields. that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try Waking Up for free. Plus you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com richroll to start your free month today, that's wakingup.com slash richroll. And I was trying to think of how to approach speaking to you and, and kind of thinking of what comes to mind when I think of who you are and what you do and the kind of recurring theme, if I had to encapsulate it in one word, I think would be mindfulness. Mm. It seems to be the... Uh, the undercurrent of everything that you do and are about. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's actually, um, it's really fair to say Mm -hmm, (laughs) Um, it hasn't always been that way though. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's become a huge focus of mine. Um, it's, it's funny. It's such a hot word now.
0: I know it's very, it's like, you know, the
1: cover of every magazine, um, So it's, and it's become, you know, like, what exactly do you mean by that? Is it the practice? Is it just being that way? Is it, and um, um, actually for me, it is, it's a literally a formal sitting practice, Mm -hmm. but it's also just, it's, you know, what, it's the way you approach your interaction with the world from the moment you open your eyes and the moment you close your eyes at night.
0: Mm -hmm. And So what does that look like for you?
1: I mean, for, for me, my sitting practice, I, every day for me starts, um, at, you know, about 640. And uh, i don 't wake up with an alarm clock my buyers i'm wired to just mm-hmm. no matter where I am in the world, no matter how little sleep i've had it's like boom i'm up
0: or your daughter is your alarm clock out would imagine Well, for a while to... it was, but now <laughs> yeah. she's at
1: an age where it's like reversed now because oh, okay. you know, like twelve years old, so now mm-hmm. I have to go and shake <laughs> but uh no, I just I kind of wander into I, I have a home office and uh you know a little area where I sit and I meditate for twenty five minutes just a very simple breath-oriented mindfulness practice, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and the dirty little secret behind that is that I had you know as you know I owned a large yoga studio in Manhattan for years and taught meditation and yoga and all this stuff and I had so much trouble mm-hmm. sitting developing a sitting. But I always meditated through movement, um, which I think is a little bit similar to you. Mm-hmm. And but I could never just sit, and um, I I didn't really develop a sitting practice until about three, four years ago, um, in response to some health stuff that literally brought me to my knees. And this was the gateway out of it.
0: Hmm. And so what is the experience been of actually really implementing that and focusing on that? I mean, it's,
1: it's tremendous. Um, but in, in ways, you know, it's weird. It's like, um, if you're in pain for a long period of time, you know, and the pain goes away, it's, it's what's not there anymore that sometimes you don't really think about that, but that becomes the most transformative element of an experience. Mm. So, um, you know, it's the response that's not there anymore to stressors Mm. or it's not that it's not there, but it's, it's that you process it so much differently. So, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a creative person, I'm constantly creating new stuff, which means that I have to spend, I live largely in Joseph Campbell's abyss, (laughs) Mm-hmm. yeah because that's the place you have to go if you want right. to bring anything to life right right um, and you have to stay there long enough for that first wave of crap to pass for the second mm-hmm. wave of pretty good ideas you know to kind of like go, and then through sort of a bit of the struggle and the deeper uncertainty until the really good stuff starts to drop and you can build around that, and that's really uncomfortable
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I've still done that my whole life, but there's been a lot of blood in the water along the way. Mm -hmm. And one of the most powerful things about the mindfulness practice for me has been that I get to go to that place and there's a greater sense of ease while I'm there. Mm -hmm. I still feel it. You know, it's still visceral for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's just a much deeper sense of equanimity um, as I move through it.
0: That's interesting. I mean, it's particularly informative, inspiring for me because... as you mentioned, you know, sort of the active meditation or the moving meditation Mm -hmm. that I experience when I'm out on a trail run or riding my bike or what have you, I will, there is certainly a mindfulness to that. And there is a meditative benefit to that. But I think that it's still not the same thing as that discipline of sitting first when you wake up in the morning. And that is something I'm very far from mastering and need more in my life. And I have fits and starts with it. And when I do it, my life is better, and I'm not reactive. Isn't it so weird and the it, way that and works? And then why can't I <laughs> right. continue to do this? Why? And it's not like – I mean it's, it's, it takes much more effort to go on a long trail run than it right. does to just sit still, and okay. yet I resist Wait, this. but that's the mythology. It doesn't. Well, I, it's the story that I tell myself. Right, because
1: right? for you, the thing that comes easy is the physicality. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like, it's baked into your soul from the time you were a kid, you were this elite endurance athlete, you know, and there were times in your life where we know that, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of got blown up. But that's the, like, for you, that's the thing where, like, that's your anchor, that's where you touch stone, you know, so, and that's the thing where when you pick it up, you know, even when you're coming back from a dark part of your life, that's Mm -hmm. the stuff that comes back fairly quickly for you. And, and we expect, um, training our mind from zero to have that same pickup, you know, where you're returning to something that you've done for years and it's it's like wired into you, even mm-hmm. if you've been away from it for a long period of time. Attention training for most people, which is fundamentally like mindfulness is this interesting blend of training your attention and training your mind to drop attention simultaneously. So it's like, you know, just being a screen where the breeze blows through, where you feel the sensation, but you just let it blow through, mm-hmm. you know, and we don't train that. Nobody ever trains that. In, in, um,
0: what is eat? to be gained from that, Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> Only everything. <laughs> <laughs> Salvation,
1: right. enlightenment. Sensei. Uh, you know, and but the funny thing is we expect ourselves to go from zero to Zen master, you know, mm-hmm. or at least to be able to be like, what do you mean? Like, I'm a grown up. I've accomplished everything in my life. You know, it takes work, but I can do it. There's nothing that hasn't really hit me back that hard are you telling me that I can't sit and focus my attention or just, you know, like let things go for five minutes or 10 minutes? We, we set an expectation, you know, but if you go back to the very early stages of your physicality, you you didn't learn to walk from zero to walk in a day Mm -hmm. or two days or a month or Mm -hmm. three months or five months, you know, and essentially it's doing the same thing because it's like, you know, our attention is almost an infantile level. And you might even argue that with the way that we're being trained through technology now, we're, whatever attention mm-hmm. that we were trained in to read as a kid It's progressively it's being eroded. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> you know, we're being trained in shorter and shorter windows of mm-hmm. attention. So now to actually sit there and say, okay, I'm going to train that focus for a longer period of time. We're, that our starting point is really close to zero mm-hmm. um, so and
0: also I think we have this idea of perfection that we hold on to that yeah. is an impediment you know i I can't meditate because I don't know how to do it, or the minute I start doing it, my mind wanders, so forget that you know no. whether whether it's the diet that you're trying to stick to or the fitness program or whatever it is, we don't give ourselves permission to fail and to and to embrace that aspect of growth
1: yeah. And and which is actually one of the fundamental parts of mindfulness practice is that you, you in theory, fail thousands of times in a sitting practice. Mm -hmm. You know, every time a thought comes in and you kind of latch onto it and then you find yourself, you're like, oh, I'm thinking, all right, let me just come back. You know, so you could label that a failure or you could just say, it's part of the process. Right. You know, um, but you've got to allow. and, And that's one of the other, the secondary benefits beyond sort of allowing you to move through uncertainty and scary places with more ease um, as a creator whether you're an artist or an entrepreneur or just anybody who has this jones to build something from nothing um, we get wrapped up in the stories in our heads right? mm-hmm. really like i'm not worthy it's not worthy you know and a lot of it's just can i curse on the show
0: <laughs> right you could say whatever you want yeah that's <laughs> total... podca- right. podcast what's a podcast where that we can't that's curse what I love right? About
1: this, right so a lot of it's total bullshit right yeah. and we know that And deep down we know it, but we hang on to all these storylines that we tell us, you know, a lot of times out of fear. Because when we hang on to those storylines, we don't have to take action. That makes Mm -hmm. us feel better being inactive. Mm -hmm. You know, so what the practice does is every time I sit and a thought comes into me and I notice that thought, A, it trains me to notice when I have a particular thought or storyline. B, it trains me in the process of dropping it. So I literally say to myself, I'll label it thinking. And with the next exhale, I'll just let it go, Mm -hmm. come back to my breath. So now you take that skill that you practice thousands of times a year in your sitting practice, and it starts to become a more and more of like a skill that you can draw on every day mm-hmm. and then when you're in your endeavors, you know whether you're preparing for a race or whether you're you know, like writing a book or building a company or body of work, um, when those voices come into your mind saying, "You suck, this body of work sucks, this thing mm. that you're building sucks," you gain a much better ability to, to a recognize." that's a storyline, it's not the truth. And then B, just label it and let it go.
0: Or or just something as simple as having an interaction that is going left on you. And hmm. somebody says something, yeah. something to you that incites you. And yeah. instead of just impulsively reacting, being able to intuit what's happening, take a breath, pause, and yeah. then respond in a mindful way that might be more productive to whatever outcome it is that you're seeking yeah
1: totally i mean much more deliberate in the way that you respond to mm-hmm. the world around you which is it talk about i mean if you want an edge in business right or in life in anything if you if you can train yourself to wait that extra heartbeat and actually say okay what's going it's funny i had this was long before i was actually meditating in a very past life as a lawyer uh, I know <laughs> we're we gonna should, get into that something moment. we share in common I was um I was working as a G man. I was at the SEC and I was in Chicago in a brutal winter taking dep- depositions. And um and I found myself in a tiny cinder block room um deposing a witness and the witness's counsel was say somebody who's very famous. Mm-hmm. Um and I was green, you know, like I'm a year out of out of law school and I'm going against this legend. Right. And um so I said that you know, like on the record. I start asking questions. Ten minutes in, he's like, "What are you talking about? This is completely irrelevant. This doesn't matter." And my first reaction is freak out. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm, I'm a newbie. I'm an idiot. I just totally screwed up. And this guy is, you know, like a a titan in the industry. And then I don't know why I did this, but for a moment, I just kind of like my mind said, "Okay, hit pause. Zoom the lens out. What's really happening here? Is he really angry?" And what I realized in that heartbeat was that he was testing me. Mm-hmm. That's all that was going on. And this was a moment where I, I could either respond by freaking out or just cave to what he wanted. Right. Or I could say, okay, this is a test. How I handle this will determine how the entire rest of this day goes. So somehow I drew on the fortitude. I don't know where this came from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he basically like, you know, I represent the SEC. I determine what's relevant if you've got a problem with that, here's the phone. Let's call the judge.
0: Mm-hmm. He sat down.
1: Deposition continues. Right.
0: So now he knows. He, he, he threw that test at you. If you had caved or freaked out, then he's like, I got that guy. I yeah.
1: So it's like mm-hmm. the practice, the mindfulness practice allows you to tap into that so much more easily. Right.
0: And this was years before, yeah. you know, you've embarked on what you're doing now. And so there, that kernel was in there the whole time. Yeah. That, that little seed just needed to be fertilized a little bit further to flower now. So to bring it back to Joseph Campbell and Mm. the power of story and the hero's journey, let's take it back. So you're, a you're a a young, a young man with big dreams and go to law school Mm. and find yourself at, you know, basically a very powerful white shoe law firm practicing securities law and, uh, the world, the world is your oyster. Yes. So, what what happens I and mean, what what was it about that experience that made you sort of you know rethink how you were living your life or what well, was
1: going on well it was a, a a pretty traumatic entrance into that experience actually that kicked things off so like I said I started at the mm-hmm. SEC and then um, when my when my tour was over um, I went over to this place and Within the first few days, I was put on a deal, and the deal was we had something like 18 days to do a public offering in a foreign country, which is what you do in these mm-hmm. firms. That's why they get hired. So you know the whole team goes to work, and we're barely, nobody's sleeping, and um, we're all working to file these documents. And the three or four days before everything's due, I start to feel something in the middle of my body. It doesn't feel good. I, I just feel off. And I'm like, well, it's because I'm not sleeping. I'm, you know, like eating garbage. I'm just, you know, stressed out of my mind. Everybody's like that on the team. Mm-hmm. And it gets progressively worse. Every hour it gets worse and worse and worse. I'm having trouble standing. There's this deep stabbing pain in the center of my body. And um, and finally, I'm doubled over. We're at the printers. This is back in the days of the printer, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like oh, right. Lined, I remember Line checking yeah. and all this stuff. All nighters and Chinese food and chocolate yeah. and... You're guys. like,
0: I went to law school for this. Right, exactly. <laughs> You're basically a, pr- a really overpaid proofreader. Yeah, that's incredible.
1: <laughs> um, so we hit the button on the deal. We we meet our deadline and I'm doubled over and I, I take car service home and I, it gets, uh, literally it gets fuzzy after this. Um, I pass out for a few hours. I wake up, I realize there's something really wrong.
0: Are you, are, were you married at this time or you no, living alone? I'm,
1: I'm dating my wife at mm-hmm. the time, but I wasn't married. And, um. Actually, we were living together then, too, um, so but my wife wasn 't home; she was working full time so i I jump in a cab over to my my doctor. He takes a look at me, he does a quick exam, he goes kind of white, and he's like, "Look, you were in for a physical a couple of months ago, and you were cool now there 's a large mass inside of you mm. and he's like i don 't know what it is." so he like grabs me by the hand, walks me down the hall to an infectious disease guy by the end of the day i 'm checked into the hospital and being prepped for surgery and I had a huge abscess lodged sort of like in the middle of my abdomen, like mm. a pelvic abscess. And I had apparently perforated an intestine from the outside yeah. in. And it, it it was very likely that essentially I had nothing left in my immune system. I was just on empty Taps. and I had a small infection that just exploded and took over. Mm-hmm. So, you know, knock on wood, they wheel me into surgery, everything goes well. Um, I go home, but that's a huge wake up call for me. You know, it's like when your career, when your body rejects your career, mm-hmm. there's something going on. Right. And,
0: you are, you are literally a square peg trying to jam into a round hole.
1: Right. And, and had I had this, you know, crazy Jones to practice law or be a partner, I'd been like, all right, let me figure this out. <clears throat> let me figure out like mm-hmm. the humane way for me to actually continue on this path. I didn't have that. You know, I looked at the partners in the firm, and this was a noble firm—really smart people doing good mm-hmm. work. I had no desire to be them, mm-hmm. and so those sort of like that awakening and this experience led me to really realize that um, what am I working for? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I literally went back, and I stayed at the firm for another probably the better part of a year. Um, but from that moment on, I pretty much knew I was on my way out, mm-hmm. and I was just figuring out my next steps.
0: Mm-hmm. And the the prospect of stepping out of outside of that protective cocoon is is terrifying especially when you've spent so many years training to be that and you've created an identity around it and it's very secure and safe it has the imprimatur of social approval upon it you know your parents and your extended family can share at the cocktail party what you do and it's all very good nice jewish (laughs) boy from long island this is my son the lawyer yeah (laughs) exactly and and the idea of of, of stepping outside of that into a complete unknown mm-hmm. is, is terrifying. And that, that gets into this subject of fear that I really want to explore with you because I think you really have an amazing take on it.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, was defi- it was definitely um, terrifying. Although what's interesting for me when I really look back um, is that to me, practicing law was the aberration. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was a lifelong artist and entrepreneur before that. And, um, you know, I was a kid, I had my first business that I sold in college, mm. you know, and when I was in high school, I, you know, I tried being a stock boy for a short period of time. It was a disaster and I just like had my own businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I was an artist, you know, as always, I was painting, I was, <clears> I was selling <throat> art to make money in high school. Um, so know, why
0: I, did you go to law school to begin with? You know,
1: <laughs> it's a really <laughs> good question. I've racked my brain <laughs> yeah. trying to figure this out. Um, there is kind of like, there are a couple of funny experiences, so Almost to the last minute, there was, um, it was really close between physical therapy school and law school because I've always been fascinated with the mm-hmm. way the body works. And, um, and I, I, just, I, was, I was really trying to figure out what to do. And part of the decision was that because I was so involved in my own venture during college, I basically didn't ever go to class. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do that well in college. How I got into law school I got into, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really curious what I was capable of on an intellectual level. And I knew that law school, even if I didn't practice, would prepare me with a set of skills. At least I thought it would give me a way to think and a way to speak and a way to sort of like move in the business world.
0: Well, I think it does that. It does. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it totally does. Um, In a way that where like no matter what I did, Mm -hmm. it would be useful to me. And so I kind of went on a mission, you know, like my goal was to do really well in school and knock on wood. I yeah, I, I was fortunate I did, um, and but it was it was a big aberration for me and um, you know I figured maybe I'll practice law and and I did because I was like oh well, let me see what this is about but it mm-hmm. was never for me about like I, I feel it in my bones I want to right. be a lawyer I'm called to do it. this and um, it's funny because I came out of you know I had two grandparents that were noble lawyers, you know that mm-hmm. both both grandfathers were. You know, full Loved long Passionate. careers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, courtroom lawyers, trial lawyers. Right. And, um, and I was just not wired for it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I and the um, the 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 business side of the practice also as there's a, a huge amount of waste and a huge amount of posturing and a huge amount of argument that goes into the practice and mm-hmm. that well, and, it's
0: not a it's not a <clears throat> an industry that thrives on efficiency. It's when not when you're billing by the hour, right? <laughs> yeah. And and there's
1: this massive disincentive there, right? <clears throat> and you're like you're never going to go out and say like people are deliberately defrauding clients or anything like that, but you, you just there's a culture that I think grew up over decades, mm-hmm. you know, where there's just and that changed profoundly in the last ten years. Yeah. It's not the same anymore, mm-hmm. but which I think it's a good thing um, that that's changed. There's a lot more accountability. There's a lot more like what are you actually doing? But um and and I don't knock the profession at all. I mean, like I said, there. are – there are plenty of lawyers doing incredible work in the world and, and operating ethically and really rising to an incredible standard and mm-hmm. serving. But what I found was that there is um, I wanted to create more directly. Mm-hmm. I also saw my clients. I was a hedge fund lawyer um, and a securities lawyer. So I, I represented the people who were out there raising other people's money and then doing big stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I increasingly, I wanted to be my client.
0: Right. I can understand that. Um, And yet at the same time, despite having this sort of burgeoning awareness, it took a health crisis to Mm. really trigger you into actually doing something about that. I mean, if had that not happened, maybe you would have, I mean, you would have inevitably probably found your way out of it, but it might've taken a lot longer. Yeah.
1: I mean, either that or maybe, you know, it's interesting. I, I sometimes every once in a while I'll go back and be like, if I had found, if I had found a mentor in that firm, or if I had gone into a different part of the firm that was maybe more um creative and constructive on some level and, mm-hmm. in a way that just resonated with the way that I like to create and construct. Maybe I'd still be a lawyer, mm-hmm. but um so much of the fundamental part is that you're you're standing in the shoes of your client and um and arguing on their behalf and I didn't wanna be a proxy for someone else.
0: Right, your, your entire life is premised upon being a proxy. Yeah,
1: and I wanna be the It's the almost principal. like a shadow
0: artist yeah. capacity in a Julia Cameron kind of way. Yeah, and, and some people love that and they're built for it. And, mm-hmm. they, and you know, like if that's you rock on, um, it
1: just wasn't me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So you make the break, mm. and the first step mm-hmm. is uh, is physical, <laughs>
1: physical trainer, right? Yeah, the first step is um, Six figures in Armani suits to twelve bucks an hour, <laughs> tights and, Jersey, and right? running shoes. Yeah. Um, yeah well, it actually, was first it was a, a little studio on the upper east side because uh-huh. I wanted to learn the business. So there was this one studio that charged you know, an ungodly amount of money just to say you belonged. And you, know, right. our clients were celebrities and socialites and uh-huh. captains of industry. And but I wanted to learn. The, this was a model that I knew was working phenomenally well as a business. And I wanted to learn the industry from the bottom up. So I could have gone and found my, you know, a job mm-hmm. as a manager somewhere. Something like that. But I, I want to know this, the, the the social dynamic at the most basic level of service so I can understand what's wrong with it and then figure out how to build it better.
0: So you're already thinking like an entrepreneur. Yeah, I beginning. can't not think you know, like idea. that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I look around. It's so funny. People say to me, they're like, oh, you know, I'm, there's nothing that I'm passionate about. There's no like I can't figure out what to do. And I'm just like, oh, man. <laughs> I well, can't sort of ra- open your eyes, right? You know, it's like you, if you literally just sit and observe You know, there is so much possibility Everywhere that you like even the deepest of the doldrums 2008 2009 2010, you know There were millions of people in pain in this country and I get that but there were millions of other people salivating mm-hmm. at the possibility that was being unlocked with that mess disruption i mean there's no such thing as disruption without possibility mm-hmm. it doesn't exist so if you find yourself in a state of disruption your job becomes how do i find the possibility because mm-hmm. it is always there
0: mm-hmm. so from personal truth yeah so to so to i start studio
1: yeah so so i I stayed there for about six months and then opened my own facility after that, which was the one out in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And um and we built that and grew pretty quickly. And um and I had a partner in that and then after about two and a half years I was really yearning to be back in the city and, and do something a little bit different. So, um I sold my interest in that company. And um was living in Hell's Kitchen, married three month old baby and uh just walked by a place where I just saw I mean this was like a second story um 115 year old building on 9th avenue in hell's kitchen mm-hmm. and um and there was a picture window of, like the whole front of the building was just glass and I looked up I'm like oh I wonder if that's this cool inside as it is outside there's a for rent sign so I you know I go upstairs check it out and it's like a burned out crack den inside mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's a horrible but you know it's got good bones so um so my wife comes we take a look at it I'm like huh and I had been exploring yoga as a business around then too, because, um, I sort of started to develop my own practice a bit. And, um, again, I saw this, I saw a gap. It's like some people, <laughs> it's a movie. I see dead people. Mm-hmm. I see gaps. I see, I see needs that aren't filled everywhere I look. And what I saw was that people coming out of my background from that world, you know, 30, 40, 50 something year old, unfit, sedentary, um, Walking into a, a, one of the other studios that was around New York City back then, terrifying, mm-hmm. terrifying. Most mm-hmm. people feel that way in big box gyms too, but right. in a yoga studio, it's amped to another level because it's dark, there's weird music, there's incense, you, you're barefoot, you're unstretchy. Um,
0: yeah, it's not, it's not accessible for the average it's du- not. dude is special. Yeah. And you know. it's way, I mean, now, it's, now it's a little, yeah. yeah, it's different now. But like back, this is I mean, 2001. Right, right. I mean, that's around the time when I started exploring it, yeah. too. And I would go <clears throat> primarily initially because there were more beautiful women in a small square right, footage space than <laughs> anywhere else. Then. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, maybe, you know, a couple of gay guys and like maybe one other straight guy. And I was like, this is a good, you know, like I, I was able to overcome that barrier and do it. But but I would notice like there's no guys here and I would feel so great and I would tell my friends, but yeah. it's a leap, you know, for most people. So. Yeah,
1: and it's intimidating. So, so, so the question in my head was, can I create a solution here that preserves all the power of the practice but lowers barriers to participation? Mm-hmm. So um, in the beginning we actually stripped a lot of the spirituality out of it. Um, and we stripped a lot of the, the sort of like the, the setting type of thing. So we didn't burn incense. Why didn't I burn mm-hmm. incense? Because I know that 80% of the women, the people back then at least were female and that women have a much higher likelihood of migraines and that a lot of women have scent triggered migraines. Mm-hmm. And so that there were a, a, you know, a segment of women who were avoiding yoga studios because of the incense. Um, so I wanted this to be a haven. You know, we stripped out chanting in the beginning because a lot of people were terrified of that. They had no, it's like, what is this, a cult? Right. Of course it is a cult. We know that now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it was a very sanitized version in the beginning. We, it's What's funny is over time we actually kind of reclaimed a lot of that, you know, as we moved our community back into mm-hmm. it. But um, when we started out, it was very modern, kind of like, a, you know, like a Japanese uh, simple style mm-hmm. place. Um, but nicely designed and um and the day we opened uh or the week we opened there was a there was an article about us in the village voice was back then was you know like mm-hmm. the cool hot newspaper mm-hmm. in new york and the headline on the article i still remember this was um yuppie yoga comes to new york
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i'm like oh, man wow. yuppie yoga that night the door flies open and there's you know like a dozen women like is this a yuppie yoga place <laughs> And I'm like, well, yes, yes, it is.
0: <laughs> uh, it's like that scene in Wolf of Wall Street when Jordan Belfort's so upset about the Forbes piece and then about being sort of maligned. And then the next day, there's everybody wants a job there. Right.
1: And it's yeah. like, you know, it validated everything. We were busy really fast, mm-hmm. um, and, we, and, and which is interesting because the, back, the backdrop here that I didn't share was that um, I signed the lease on a Florida building in House Kitchen the day before 9-11 in mm-hmm. New York City. Um, and so the fact that I actually, we went through with this and actually opened, built it out and opened it, um, you know, like eight weeks later, it was touch and go from Mm. the beginning. And I was sitting there, I'm I'm married, I own a home, I have a three month old baby, I sign a, you know, like a floor lease, a six year lease for a Florida building in New York and like the lower third of Manhattan is bombed out. Um, and I'm just sitting there saying, what? the hell am I doing? Like, Mm -hmm. am I putting my family at risk? Like, how can I justify this? everything is crashing and burning business in New York City was a disaster. Um,
0: And yet you could make the argument that a yoga studio is a safe haven for healing that, you know, people can go to and start to piece together how they feel about what's transpired.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly what I came around to. And, um, and that became a huge driver. So initially, you know, I had planned on launching this thing like a gym and doing like a big fan and Mm -hmm. scrap all that stuff because the mood in New York was radically different, but we were, we were actually located two avenue blocks away from the pier where a lot of the relief workers were being staged so we just sent people down there saying look just come like don't pay mm-hmm. like we're not looking just come <clears throat> right it's every, free yoga yeah everyone was just wandering around the city looking for a place to be and looking for some way to serve and looking for just something to do um, so we just off we opened up the doors and we said like this is it's, this is just the right thing this is what we need to do this is how we need to serve now And and people came you know, mm-hmm. And people responded, and people came regularly, and there was you know, a lot of new friendships, there was a lot of crying, there was a lot of <laughs> moving and breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I realized really quickly that the city never needed this more than at that moment, which led to another interesting thing, which is the first time, um, which was a major story in the New York Times, the front cover of the job mm-hmm. section in the New York Times, where the, the the story was about businesses that had inadvertently um, taken a bump because, because of, of nine eleven, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we were featured in that story. So I was like, you know, goodness, news, bad news. Hey, mom, right. I'm in the New York Times. <laughs> but I felt really weird about that. Being is a weird, yeah, it's story a lot because weird, I don't conflicting want conflicting emotions, right? Because it's like I don't want this sense of like I'm predatory, predatory or I designed yeah. it this way. Mm-hmm. It's just you know. Um, so it was in, it was interesting. Um, thankfully, a year later, they did a, like a third page profile in the business section. I kind of wiped that one clean. <laughs> but,
0: but at the time, really, your 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 vision was to kind of expand Sonic Yoga and be kind of a yoga yes. entre, you know sort of a yoga entrepreneur, like a Yoga Works model, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I mean, where did that kind of where did you start to change your mind about that direction?
1: Yeah. So we actually went through the entire franchise process. Um and I you know hired a franchise lawyer and filed and which is an incredibly complicated and expensive process. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. <laughs> by the way, um, and the goal was to see if we could actually roll out the first like national kind of like very standardized yoga franchise. Mm-hmm. And we actually we we did two test franchises, um, kind of like friends and family to to kind of see how it would work and also see how I felt about scaling this model in this way, and what i realized pretty quickly was that i didn't like doing it mm-hmm. um it was it's it's not the easiest model to scale i mean the only one who i know who's done it really 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 effectively and really well um is core power yoga out of colorado mm-hmm. um they and they and it's very very systematic i mean very, everything is dialed in and systematized and, and on, on a very high level. Right, just plug um, and play. Yeah, and then there's, there's Bikram, um, which is interesting in its own. That's a whole own, sticky right, wicket. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there, there are big beasts like uh, Yoga Works, mm-hmm. which, you know, like, and I knew those guys started two years after or a year or two after us, mm-hmm. actually. And their plan was very different. It was, let's just, let's buy up a whole bunch of pre-existing studios right. and see if we can roll them up into a single brand. And they really struggled a lot in the beginning. And it's only like from like a lot more recently that they've actually started to, at least from my knowledge, dial in the model better with sort of like the bigger box. Um, Interesting. Thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I only know just. I mean, living in Los Angeles, they just suddenly all the yoga studios were owned by Yoga Works right. like almost overnight. And, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, they the original standardized yoga. it yeah. right.
1: <clears throat> um, but they, I mean, that was started by the two guys who started the SGU search engine, mm-hmm, right? You know, and they went back and they got something like ten million bucks um, in VC from the original guys who funded them mm-hmm. with the quest to do that. But within it was like a year or two, they were out. Because, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, because it is for the amount of work in in the that space, um, you know, the the multiples on a venture backed business, it's brutally hard. Mm-hmm. To to actually recoup that or sell, you know, because if you're venture-backed, at some point the assumption is you're exiting. Right. You know, and you're hopefully exiting at a very large multiple. Yoga business doesn't really work that
0: way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they got out soon. And so you're starting to have this realization. And I think like, you know, at the same time that I said, you know, you have this sort of intuitive mindfulness aspect to your nature, there's this natural-born educator or teacher mm. or, you know, somebody who wants to extend the hand and help guide people, which I think is yoga is, is about, you know, at its core. And maybe that's what drew you to some aspect of being in that business. But the franchise, that aspect of the business is very divorced from that. Right. It it is. Yeah.
1: So eventually we, I ended up just folding that Mm -hmm. whole thing. I learned a lot of lessons. I lost a lot of money. People Mm -hmm. never talk about their failures. That was a big freaking Mm -hmm. failure. Um, and, but but it, it it was a failure in that it didn't work the way that I hoped it would work. But at the and and I lost a chunk of money and it took us a couple of years to build back up to where we were. But it was also a tremendous growth experience for mm-hmm. me. I mean, I learned about systemization and all these different things on a whole different. I learned about the franchise system. I learned I you know did a deep analysis of who else was out there. Um, and I learned I knew this, but it smacked me back to the importance of focusing on your core business Mm -hmm. and not sacrificing that in the name of rapid growth or scaling. And that is one of the single biggest mistakes that I see entrepreneurs making across the board now.
0: Just leaping too soon, trying Uh, to expand too quickly.
1: Yeah. Or or trying Mm -hmm. to expand something that really shouldn't be expanded.
0: Mm -hmm. And so where does that leave you in terms of what you're going to be doing next?
1: So you know, from there, I came back to the core business, and we kind of doubled down, and we started to grow again, and did really nicely. But um, my my entrepreneurial ADD eventually takes me in different <laughs> it directions. creeps back up. Yeah, you know, we had, we started a media division that kept me interested for a while. We we're putting out DVDs and stuff like that, and how that got started is a whole nother story. But <laughs> mm. um, it, I won't go there actually because we have limited time. But <clears <clears <throat> um,
0: we'll go as long as you want. <laughs>
1: All okay, right, quick funny That's story. That's up to you, yeah. So we weren't supposed to have a media division. I was looking to bring some um, some attention to the business and I wanted national attention. So um, I figured, well, what can I tie this to? Can I tie yoga to weight loss? Mm. I looked around, there are a whole bunch of claims, but there was no research. Mm-hmm. So I approached the head of Adelphi University's human performance lab. I said, hey, you want to run a study on how many calories, the metabolic cost of vinyasa yoga? It kind of laughed at me, he's like, so I convince them to do a pilot study just on me. So I go in there. They wire me up with, you know, like I've got a mask mm-hmm. and bite plates and tubes coming out of me. And they're measuring my breath every six seconds. You know this process well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but instead of on a treadmill, like I'm doing a yoga sequence with this. Right. There are like guys on either side of me wrangling the tubes out of my way and like uh-huh. getting knocked over. And at the end of 15 minutes, like, you know, everyone's standing there saying, holy crap, this is yoga?
0: Oh, wow. So that that the data's coming back in your favor.
1: Yeah. So they're like, how quickly can we get a study together? So I brought, you know, so we got the whole thing together. I brought a whole bunch of people out to the university, ran them through the study, and then we did full graded maximal exercise tests and lactic blood stuff, Mm -hmm. everything. Um, And then they presented at the ACSM um, annual meeting the following year. So, legit study that showed how much. But as soon as they said yes, I reached out to the um, fitness editors of the top fitness magazines who are all in new york and said who wants mm-hmm. an exclusive mm-hmm. so one said yes and she actually um convinced me and and the study lead to be in the study she was a subject so um the results come out great and uh i get a call from her like in the beginning of the summer and she's like hey listen yeah you know, we're gonna run a, a little thing on um on this it's too bad you guys you know you're a small local studio we've got like five million readers this was for Self Magazine, mm-hmm. and." Um, I was like, you know, funny you mentioned that. She's like, what? I said, well, you know, we got a video. Um, and, and it's in post-production. She's like, what's it called? Like, Vinyasa Heat Live. I said, well, how much? Nineteen ninety five. 95 mm-hmm. Like, where you can get it on our website? She's like, great, we'll put it in. So I hang up the phone and I look at like, my, the studio manager. I'm like, we got to make a video. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You just came up with that on the uh, totally. spot. Oh totally did
1: not exist. Right. I'm like, I can't let this opportunity no, go. No,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. You How gotta hard have. I be to make a video, right? right. We'll figure it out. <clears throat> this is your sales funnel,
1: right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we're like just hustling and pulling together people, and lo and behold, like a, you know, a pallet of videos drops in front of the studio in New York City and Hell's Kitchen like a week before the magazine hits. Wow. We blow them out, and like we just start, you know, And that starts our media mm-hmm. division. We We release
0: a whole bunch of additional things. Yes. Uh huh. So yeah. So you're experiencing this. I mean, a, a new way of affecting people in a viral way through the video.
1: Yeah, and it lets us go beyond our immediate community. You know, that said, and and operating a lot in the online world these days too. I still have such a strong orientation towards face to face service. Mm-hmm. Um, because digital just doesn't get you there mm-hmm. you know it gets you there if you're stuck somewhere in the middle of the country or somewhere else in the world where you just can't get face to face awesome if That's the next best thing you know, let's go digital, but if you've got any way to access people face to face in a room, you know look somebody in the eye to breathe, hug, move, whatever it is, nothing that beats that. it's a lot of the reason why we do what we do with a good life project which mm-hmm. we'll get to I guess some right.
0: yeah, we're gonna get to that
1: anyway, seven years into uh this journey at Sonic yoga. I'm, I'm restless enough. I've, I've started to really, um, reconnect with the love of writing and, uh, sold my first book. Um, so, and I want to really just take some time and start to focus Mm -hmm. on that and focus on the next adventure. So, um, so I sell the, uh, yoga center. Mm-hmm. And um, and move into the sort of like the next big phase, which is writing in the online world.
0: Mm-hmm. And as a result of writing writing this book, which was turn, it's called uh, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance. Right? That was was that the that's first book, or one that's up. the second yeah. one? What was the first one? First oh, one was Career Renegade. Career Renegade. Okay. Right. And that's really kind of your story of, of of accessing this more authentic version of yourself, and yeah. breaking out of this system, and yeah, and building a career around something that's more right. meaningful. And as a result of that you learn all this stuff about the publishing world, right, and how this stuff. works. Right. And uh some of some of these things I've learned as a, yeah. as a result. Um and then you write the second book and so you're you're picking up all of these experiences and along the way I think you're really tapping into this um idea of being of service, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it's sort of that goes hand in hand with the mindfulness with you. It's like how can I be of service and everything is about, you know, here's a need that people have and here's how I can serve that, mm. right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny. The original name for my blog before I just, yeah, you know, decided to do it with any other name was, was Awake at the Wheel. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a common thread with almost everything that I do is that I like to create opportunities for people to wake up, and that probably includes me too. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I don't hold myself out as a guru or sage or anything like that. I'm a, you know I'm I'm along the path with everybody else stumbling and fumbling and sometimes doing better, sometimes not. But um, I was a DJ in college, and I got my first taste of the ability to take 500 people on a dance floor in a club for five hours and bring them on a transcendent journey, where they they enter in state A and they leave in state B, Mm -hmm. and that has never left me. It's what I did in a yoga class. I mean, when I taught yoga, my goal was somebody comes in, in state A. I have 90 minutes to deliver them into state B and allow them to leave in a different place. You know, So how can I create opportunities for people to do that in the short term? How can I create them on a sustained basis? And how can I I create opportunities for people to be able to do that for themselves and not have to rely on me or anyone else Mm -hmm. to bring that into their lives every single day? So the mindfulness plays into that because it's like, the more mindful you are of what's going on in your world, the more dialed into sort of like the reality of, um, of possibility you are.
0: Mm-hmm. And so where does the, where does the teaching start to creep in? Like where does this sort of advocacy, whether it's through your website, your blog posts, yeah. your books, like where does that start to creep in as being kind of a mission for you? The, I mean,
1: I, I guess you could probably say it actually really started to creep in, um, in the yoga world, you mm-hmm. know, when we started the studio, there were two of us. I wasn't really supposed to be a teacher. I had no business being a teacher. Right. So, but there were two of us mm-hmm. and we got busy fast. Right. So all you of a sudden. do
0: it all, clean the bathroom and. Everything, <laughs> I literally,
1: glass. you know, I had a lot of fitness world experience and I had been teaching the fitness world. So I kind of, but, but, um, so I literally went to, um, I, I went to Amazon and I, and I bought the top 10 selling yoga uh, videos and memorized all the routines.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that what you, that was your own self styled teacher training. <laughs> so, so for the first six months yeah. until I actually like
1: went and got trained and like uh, really, you know, I was doing one day on Baron Baptiste, one day on Rodney and uh, like rotating and people are like oh, all the guy. Embodies. Wow. Like you're really good. Like the way you sequence is just, mm-hmm. and I'm like, right. Well, I thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I, there's something about being in a room of people and, um, to me, figuring out stuff that's hard to figure out is really cool, but probably turning around and if I can some way share that with other people mm-hmm. and and serve as an, some sort of partial unlock key for them, mm-hmm. I think that's more fun for me.
0: Yeah. Well, I would say you're a, you're a student of the problem and a student of the solution. And mm. then you have this aptitude for translating that into tools that people can use. Meh. I would probably agree yeah. with that. Is that agreeable?
1: Nah. Yeah.
0: I'm down with that. All right, cool. So <laughs> So, let's get into Good Life Project. Okay. I love Good Life Project. You've Thank done you. such an amazing uh job with it um and for, you know, people that are listening, uh you should definitely check it out. I mean, how many episodes do you have now?
1: I think we're around uh it's hard for me to keep track actually cuz we film about 3 or 4 months ahead, mm-hmm. so I know what we have in the can versus public um I think public were' about uh closing in on two years of episodes, mm-hmm. so we're probably like seventies seventy something 70 something right five seasons, six seasons now
0: <clears throat> they're all videos and with a very high production quality and now you 've re- more recently you 've been putting up a, up on iTunes just in the audio format mm-hmm. right so you can you can find it as a podcast, but I would strongly urge everybody to watch the video versions of that just to see the interaction and they're really wonderful and you, you what i love is the kind of wide variety of guests you know yeah. people coming in with all different kinds of experiences that you know seemingly are unrelated and yet there's a common through line yeah. and if you could sort of articulate what that through line is i mean how would you describe that yeah
1: it's it's really funny you ask because it's something i've been trying to really think about mm-hmm. um you know, like what is this and and like very recently we just aired um we just aired a uh this montage, like a, a mashup video that somebody actually, a viewer made for me as a gift he went mm-hmm. through. He went through like the first year of episodes and pulled out everybody's answer to a particular question and edited into this really beautiful four minute thing. And, um, and when he presented that to me, I was, I was kind of floored because I, I sat there and for the first time I was like, holy crap, this is, this is real, you know, this is like turning into a body of work and i never really looked at it like big sort of like bigger picture like that mm-hmm. and um and i start to really kind of say like well like what is this what am i actually doing here and i think there are two things going on um one is there's a really strong focus on um telling the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things hero's journey mm-hmm. like the ordinary person's hero's journey and that's one of the reasons why i don't just select one type of person from one industry you know like i want to show local moms I want to show artists mm-hmm. and illustrators and captains of industry and athletes and um because there's a commonality in in the stories of um ordinary people struggling with very real demons and then finding a way through mm-hmm. um and that's really 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 powerful which leads to the second realization of what this show actually is and it's um it's becoming a body of evidence you know so you have so many people that walk through life saying, Well, you know, I can't do that. You know, and because nobody around, maybe, and maybe they surround themselves with a whole mm-hmm. bunch of people just like them, where everyone's kind of like trapped themselves in the box that, that very often they've built or their families have built and they've never decided to build their own or their friends, whatever it may be, or their local society. And their life is defined by, I can't. And they never test those assumptions. Mm-hmm. So part of what I'm realizing is this thing that we're building is it's a body of evidence where we have enough of a cross-section of people in this growing like library of humanity where anybody can show up now and probably find five variations of themselves with similar or harder struggles. And these people have figured out how to do really extraordinary things with mm-hmm. their lives. And it makes it increasingly difficult for then you to go back and say, I can't.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that story starts to erode. And I think that... <clears throat> excuse me, I have a frog in my throat. Uh, that there is nothing more powerful than the average person sharing openly and authentically and allowing themselves to be vulnerable. Mm. The inherent power of that to communicate to another person and transform their lives is it's inestimable. You know, yeah. you you cannot put a quantum value on that and it's different from saying, do these five things, here's your list, you know, of this, it's just share from the heart, you know, tell us what happened, where did you go wrong? What did you do right? And, uh, and that's, I think what's really resonating with people. And I think it begs a bigger question of media in general and what we've kind of grown accustomed to as a society of the soundbite and the sort of, um, unreliable news story and this TMZ culture and this deep yearning and desire that's almost primal in a Joseph Campbell kind of way for that real human story that connection. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think a lot of people have um have walked away from the possibility of of being the hero mm-hmm. in their own lives or in the lives of other people. Yeah, and and hero we don't like we're not talking about superhero thing. We're talking about ordinary person leaning into that thing that um calls them deeply but scares them most and and you know like joseph campbell said you know like you know wherever your abyss is there lies your treasure Mm. and we walk away from that um because we're terrified we don't have Mm -hmm. the tools to handle it but also we just don't believe that the possibility really exists on the other side
0: Mm
1: -hmm. you know and and um so we surround ourselves with people who believe that too, because it makes us feel comfortable about not acting.
0: Right, and you create a firmament around that story. Yeah, you know, and it's ordinary people, like you said. It's that's the <clears>
1: stuff <throat> that matters most. You know, we have some higher profile people, but you know, I want to I want to tell relatable stories.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, on my podcast, I mean, the the most popular episodes have been the ones that nobody's heard of. Mm. It's just a guy who you know sort of decided to course, correct in a certain way. And that, I think that strikes an emotional chord with people no. that, that allows them to tap in and relate and find strength in that. Um, but you know, behind all of this, when we're talking about, um, the power of story for better or worse, the way that we can create a firmament around our lives using a story that doesn't necessarily serve us. Um, we're in this fascinating time where, We've never had more access to amazing information. Mm. You know, the the Good Life Project is two keystrokes away from everybody at any given moment, and they can tap into that. And yet, um, we've never been more kind of in a, in a more uh, fear based culture mm. in terms of mainstream media and the messaging that we're just inundated with throughout the day. It's like fear, fear, fear. Be very afraid. Here's what's happening around the world. You know, lock yourself in your house and you know, you're gonna lose all your money or whatever it is, the implicit sort of, whether it's through Madison Avenue or, or elsewhere or the people that you surround yourself with, it's very easy to become entrapped. with Amanda D'Academy. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. I think that you have some really great wisdom to impart when it comes to how we approach fear or rethinking how we imagine fear mm. and how, and the role that that plays <clears throat> in our life.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, mm sort of like a couple of parts to it, you know, one is, um, is the fear legit or not? You know, or are you reacting to a circumstance that's real or not? You know, and can you change that circumstance? Um, and even if you could change it, should you, um, you know, we tend to, we recoil, we have a physical response to stimuli in our environment that would create fear, mm-hmm. you know, so we react to it. So the, the fear is not the actual circumstance. It's our response to it. You know, and, um, and it's conditioned. It's not a voluntary response. We don't be like, oh, I choose fear. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, I'm under. No, oh, I it's, choose fear. Yeah, it's the lizard brain. Right. You know, it's literally, it's wired into us at this point. You know, the problem being that a lot of, the, um, a lot of that wiring was, was, has been passed down through generations, 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 and was originally wired in response to real threats to life and limb. You know, but that same exact response now tends to pop up in response to all sorts of things all day mm-hmm. long in a fairly safe world that just challenge us to step out of that very narrowly defined box that we call comfort. You know, so as soon as we take a step out and we don't know how something's going to end, we have a fear response, and that's wired into us. And there's some interesting data. I mean, there's fMRI studies that show that when you make a decision that moves you closer to a place of the unknown, uncertainty. The amygdala in the brain lights up and causes this fight or flight response, courses, you know, like signals and chemicals through us and make us feel physically Mm -hmm. uneasy. We don't want to feel that way. So we do what we need to do to not feel that way anymore. And that's generally one of two things. We either race so fast through something to just get it done with that we ignore incredible opportunities along the way or we backpedal. We become paralyzed or we just completely back out of something until we don't feel that anymore. What Mm -hmm. we do when we do that is we shut down the possibility in our lives rather than saying, okay, here's a circumstance. What does this actually mean to me? You know, like, what's, is there a possibility if I move through this on the other side that would move me from point A to point B where point B is profoundly better? Mm-hmm. You know, more connected to people, more connected to service, more connected to nature, to world, to source, whatever it may be for you. You know, and because if, if, if you can answer yes, there's a possibility of that, if I stay in this place, um, then the question becomes, how do I quit myself to be here long enough to see if I can make that happen? Mm. And we don't do that. You know, Nobody trains that skill. Mm-hmm. We just assume that you either have it, and you know, like the great entrepreneurs, the great business builders, the great artists, you know, people just assume that you're wired somehow in a way that allows you to be in that place. Right. long well, enough They to have do the gene, you know, they have right. The, right. And to a certain extent, some people may have that. But most of the greatest creators of our times don't. You know, there are all sorts of things that they build into their lives that allow them to be in that place, mm-hmm. with enough baseline equanimity to be okay. They may not be in like la di da, everything's roses, mm-hmm. but enough to to be okay in that place um, and to process, to turn it. You, know, you could turn it, turning fear into fuel. You know, rather than into paralysis mm-hmm. or destruction.
0: Yeah, it's not the removal of fear. It's your response to the fear. It's whether that's going to create a, a paralysis or whether you, you're you going to have the wherewithal to walk through it nonetheless nah. without knowing the result. And I think that, um, yeah, when you see people doing that, we make this assumption that they're not afraid. Maybe they're afraid. They're just doing it anyway. They're giving their, themselves permission to fail. Right. They're not allowing that to be a barrier to action. And I think one thing that helps me is to, it goes back to story and the stories that we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves, this is really scary, and if I go through this, all these bad things might happen, right? Mm. But to also, on the flip side of that, look at the things that we think are secure in our life. Oh, this job is secure, or my marriage is secure, or all these sorts of things. And to realize those things are as impermanent as anything else. Yeah. And that, that, that story about security revolving around that is just as illusory as... The story you're telling yourself about the fear, and if you know something like nine eleven can put that into perspective or you know sometimes it takes a jarring event for that, but to be able to walk through your day and realize it's all a story mm. it's all it, it only has the power that you allow it to have
1: yeah no I mean and, and that is a huge realization mm. you know people ask the what if I fail question nonstop and that allows them the luxury of not doing anything of not mm-hmm. taking action because if you keep telling that story then you get to rationalize in action. You know? But what if you ask two more questions? You know, what if I do nothing? And if you're in like a sideways slide, um, and you extend that out 5, 10, 15 years. The what if I do nothing scenario, realistically painted, is almost always the most horrifying possible right. outcome. <laughs> right? right? But people don't ask that. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, what if I'm putting on two pounds a year? What if I'm getting less and less healthy? What if I'm getting more estranged from my kids? What if I, I'm less, you know, like less and less connected to the work that I'm doing in the world now? And what if I extend that five years and 10 years? And there is no neutral. There's no sideways. You're only going up or down. There's no sideways in life. Mm-hmm. You know, so like, and if you don't apply energy to go up, you're going down. You know, so what if you take that and it just gets worse and worse and worse 10, 15 years later? You know, everything's going to suck. Mm-hmm. There's a horrible scenario if you're at a point where things aren't going well and you don't do anything to change your trajectory. You know, and then you've got to ask but one But it's the question. devil you know. Right, and exactly. And that's what keeps people stuck. Exactly. exactly. And the other thing is that, that, they don't put equal emphasis on a third question, which
0: is what if I succeed? That's the one that gets me. Yeah. That's the one I'm, I think if I'm honest, that's the one that scares me the most. It scares a lot and of And I people. think it doesn't get enough discussion. Well, no, I totally you know? agree.
1: And and I I'm, I'm there is think about that on a regular basis because um, I have this dual, I have like split personality where I want to do really deeply meaningful work and be hyper-present in the lives of my wife and daughter. Um, at the same time, I want to do something big mm-hmm. <laughs> that changes a lot of lives, you know? And, um, so one of my big questions is, you know, so the question becomes, you like, how will, can I succeed on that level without it blowing up the things that I claim to hold dear in my life right mm-hmm. now? And so I can't, I'm asking the question, what if I succeed on a positive way? You're like, what will this potentially add to my life right. or to other people's lives? But also, you know, like I'm also looking at that scenario and saying, can I actually build something on that scale and keep what I say hold I hold dear? And it's an important question to ask. And and but a lot of times people create doom and gloom scenarios around that too that shut mm-hmm. them down. Like you know, most people associate the doom and gloom scenario with the what if I fail? But there are other people that go to the other extreme also and say if I succeed, you know, all the comfort that I love and all this it's going to go away and. People will hate me and attack me because I'm so popular now and I'm so successful. These Mm -hmm. things may all be true, you know, but you have to frame it in the bigger context of, well, okay, the same way when you ask the what if I fail question, you paint that scenario and then you say, how will I recover? You ask the what if I succeed question. And then if there are negatives, potential negatives attached to that, well, then how will I work to resolve those? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's like, you got to go deeper into all of those questions. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I think in terms of going deeper, all of these, this entire decision tree about whether you're going to walk through fear and and whether you're going to be a career renegade or or, or all of these things really have to begin and end with that inside inquiry, you know, Mm -hmm. because you have to be in a place spiritually, mentally, emotionally, where you can trust your instincts to be guiding you in a proper healthy direction for yourself. And, if you're not, then then you very well may be spending a lot of energy doing the wrong thing for yourself. So it goes back to mindfulness. It goes back to um, developing a practice of getting to know who you are yeah. and and asking those hard questions and spending the time. You cannot shortcut that aspect of the journey. I don't think because if yeah. you do, it's all gonna. It all could potentially be a fool's errand, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, self knowledge is
1: one of the it's funny, you know, like in this world, yeah, you, know, you use the, the phrase personal development or self-help mm-hmm. and people are like, ah, mm-hmm. shenanigans, you know, that's people trying to take my money and sell me books and courses. Um, and for some, they're probably right. Um, but, the, but the concept of self-knowledge, no matter how you get there, the fundamental concept of do I know myself, you know, that's an inquiry that very few people in Western society explore, but a lot of people in Eastern society explore. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, Um, How can you align your actions with your essence if you have no idea what your essence is?
0: And I think most people don't. Yeah, I agree. You know, and so for somebody who's listening out there who maybe maybe there's somebody listening who's in that place. I mean, what what are some initial things that somebody could do to begin that process to create some inertia and energy around that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the initial things is actually um, <laughs> some form of meditation practice or mindfulness practice. Because a, a big part of it is just if you still the waters enough, a lot of big mm-hmm. stuff just bubbles through it. And you all of a sudden start to just become aware. Um, but also really starting to ask yourself, um, what matters to me? You're know, like really asking yourself, um, you know, who matters to me? What matters to me? Who do I want to serve in this world and how? Um, and big question is for me, a big sort of inquiry for me these days has become the question, what lights me up? You know, and I'm constantly thinking about that. What is it? You know, and when I get a, a, a visceral hit, you know, when I get an intuitive hit that says, yeah, like you're responding to something, like what is it about it? And is it just that activity or can I kind of identify what are the qualities of what's going on here? Because if I I can identify those underlying qualities, then I can transpose them Mm -hmm. into all sorts of different situations. And I can get that same hit in 50, 100 different things. I'm not locked into this one thing. And that's where a lot of my work has been.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I mean, I feel like you almost, for me, I have to get, I have to protect that child inside Mm. of me. I have to get into a childlike state because it, it it was before all of, you know, it was before this social construct was imposed upon me, you mm-hmm. know, where you div- you have that joy and that, that sort of unedited um, kind of sense of yourself that over time gets eroded or repressed no. just by nature of growing up. And I have to tap back into that in order to access that part of me, you know, that I forgot no. or that has gone by the wayside. Because
1: I think we know a lot of this when we're like, you know, that's the non- thing. Right.
0: Exactly. <laughs> and we
1: walk away from it.
0: Yeah. And so one of the questions I always ask people is, well, what did you like to do when you were a little kid? Yeah, what, exactly. would you, what did you naturally gravitate towards that? Maybe somebody at some point said enough of that. Right. Yeah. No doubt. And I mean, how can we find more of that for you now? Yeah.
1: The, and, right. and then you could take it a level deeper and say, what was it about it? Mm-hmm. That lit you up, you know, but we, we don't go there. And I think part of it also has to do with the fact that society generally defines success as money, um, power, and stuff, you know, rather than connection Mm -hmm. and vitality. um, You know, these are and and contribution. Those are the things that matter.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that those are the things that give my life meaning and Mm -hmm. happiness and fulfillment, not in like, happiness in a greeting card kind of way, but a sense of purpose and direction and mm. groundedness. So.
1: Nah, no, me too. Yeah, I'm not entirely there yet. But like <laughs> no. I said in the beginning, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very much a work of process.
0: Like, <laughs> I'm not standing on any pedestal yeah. here with any of this. <laughs> on any given day, you'll find me <clears throat> somewhere in that spectrum. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a journey, and uh, the journey is... In many ways, I, I go, I have to go three steps backward and one step forward. Mm -hmm. And that's my typical experience. And the work is in to give yourself permission to do that and to keep yourself in the game.
1: Yeah. Right. No, absolutely. Like you were saying before we went on, like
0: think long game, long game. Right. So what is your long game? Be happy
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) to, to do meaningful work to, um, Spend as much time as possible, um, doing things that light me up with people I can't get enough of.
0: I think you're already doing that. Large chunks of the time, yeah. I am. But like I said, still a work in progress. Right, we all are. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Awesome. Thanks so much for doing that. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks Very for having me cool. on. So, uh, if people want to connect with Jonathan, the best way to do that is your website's JonathanFields.com. dot com. They can go to goodlifeproject dot com. You're on Twitter at John- at Jonathan Fields. Yep, pretty Any, much just my anywhere name. Anywhere Yeah, anywhere. <laughs> I, Those are fine. You just Google find, him, yeah. people. You'll <laughs> find him. It's impossible not to. And uh, I urge all of you guys to to check him out. He's uh. He's been a great source of, of knowledge and inspiration um, in my life and in my wife's lo- life. She says to say hello. Hi. Oh, hey. Yeah, she's, uh, she's been getting a lot out of the, the program on awesome. Revolution U. So thank you for that. And uh, thanks for your time, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having right. me on. Peace. Plants. All right, everybody. That's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. I don't know about you, but to me, there's something about that guy, something about Jonathan that just makes you want to sit down and hang out with him and just listen to what he has to say. And it's so cool for me that the podcast opens up the door uh, so that I get to sit down with some of these incredible people that have been so helpful and instrumental to me in my own path and my own journey and then share them with you. So before we close it out, a quick announcement. On a future episode, I'm going to give away five personally signed, inscribed paperbacks of Finding Ultra, my book, Finding Ultra. Uh, How do you get one? How can you win this personally signed book? It's simple. All you have to do is send me a question that you would like answered on the podcast. I get a lot of emails. Uh, I do my best to try to keep up with them, but there's just too many. I just can't. So what I wanted to do is have you guys send me questions via the website, email only. Don't do it on Facebook or Twitter uh, so that I can keep track of everything. And I'm going to pick five questions um, from those submitted, and I'm going to read them uh, and answer them in a future podcast episode. And the ones that I read and pick uh, will win a copy of the book, signed book by me. Uh, personally inscribed, however you want it. <laughs> okay, so uh, check that out. Uh, that episode will probably not be for a couple weeks, so I'll have some time to kind of collect and collate and go through all of the inquiries and and figure out what would be best and appropriate for the show. So you can do that. Uh, a couple appearances coming up for me. If you want to uh, come and see me speak, April first, I'm going to be at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. Um, there's no website up for that right now. That's, that's TBD. But, uh, if you're in that area, mark April 1st, and you can come out and see me. It's open to the public. April 30th, I'm going to be in Burlington, Ontario, uh, speaking at the Burlington Performing Arts Center. That's April 30th. Uh, I'll put a link on richroll.com on the page for this episode, uh, with more information, uh, if you're in that area and want to check that out. May 2nd, the Holistic Health Diary Retreat uh, in London, Ontario. We're going to be in the Toronto area for like a week, so these are this is what we're doing. Um, that's going to be Julie and I. It's going to be a half day event. Uh, all sorts of awesome stuff going on. And again, there's a link to more information about that on my site. Uh, and then May 4th, I'm going to be speaking in Toronto. Uh, I'm not sure of the details of that yet, other than I do know that it's going to be open to the public. And as soon as there's a like a splash page up or a web page up with more information, uh, I will uh, I will put that up on the site and I'll tweet it and share it on Facebook and stuff. So that's it. Uh, I want to support the show. Tell a friend, man. That's it. We love all the response that we're getting, and uh, if you've been enjoying it, that's all we ask. Just tell somebody else. But if you want to go the extra mile. The best way to do that is to use the Amazon banner ad at richworld.com. It's right there on the homepage and on all the basically every podcast page, right on the right hand margin. Click that, go to Amazon and pick up whatever it it was that you were originally going to pick up anyway. And they do not tack one cent extra onto your purchase price. It it will cost you exactly the same and it'll take you about two seconds longer. But Amazon kicks us some loose change uh, out of their massive, gigantic bank account. And that helps keep the lights on here. It helps me pay Tyler, my son, who is my podcast producer. So again, you're supporting uh, youth and entrepreneurship uh, by supporting the show by using the Amazon banner ad. And thank you, everybody who's been doing that. If you want to even step it up beyond that, you can donate to the show one time weekly. Uh, subscriptions or monthly subscriptions in any dollar amount that you want. So thank you everybody who's doing that. If you want to learn more about getting plant-based, check out our ultimate guide to plant-based nutrition. It's on mindbodygreen.com. You can find it right there on the homepage, three and a half hours of streaming video, online community, uh, downloadable tools, recipes, shopping list, all kinds of great stuff there. And we're really proud of that. Uh, And people seem to be really enjoying it. So you can check that out, whether you're a long-time plant-based person or somebody who's just plant curious and trying to figure out how you're going to sort of embark on this new journey and do it in a sustainable way, um, that's where I would send you. And a lot of the questions that I get asked online are answered in that program. So um, you can check that out. Uh, also, you can go to richworld.com for all your plant power revolution provisions. We got awesome t-shirts up there. We got a couple nutritional supplement products, and we're going to be building out our garment line and uh, we're going to be offering uh, some new products, some new nutritional supplement products, and some garments. We're working on a cycling kit. We got all kinds of good stuff in the pipeline. But for now, we got a couple cool T-shirts up there and some other good stuff. So check that out. And as always, uh, you can like me on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Twitter at @richroll. I'm on Instagram, which I love at @richroll. YouTube, richroll66. And, again, just tell a friend. That's it. All right, so that's it. I'm going to be on a boat next week. I'm speaking on the holistic holiday. What is it? The, the vegan cruise, the holistic holiday at sea. Uh, so I'm going to be sailing around the Caribbean. Uh, hopefully there's Wi-Fi. I think there is so I can stay connected with all of you guys. Um, but have a great week, everybody, and I'll be back back next week with another awesome guest for you. So I'm out of here. Thanks, you guys. Peace. bye <laughs>